Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Anthony, bringing you this latest episode. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. This episode features Andrew McAfee, who is co-founder and co-director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and a principal research scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He studies how digital technologies are changing the world and how people and businesses will work, interact, and prosper in an era of profound digital transformation. Andrew's published book, More From Less, The Surprising Story of How We Learn to Prosper Using Fewer Resources and What Happens Next, tells the story of an important, unexpected, and heartening change in our relationship with the planet we all live on. Andrew believes there is a new reason for optimism and discusses how humans will live more prosperous lives while treading more lightly on the earth. Moderated by Kate Brandt, here is Andrew McAfee, More From Less. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I want to start off by presenting just a blizzard of evidence about our relationship with the planet that we all live on. And I want to make the case that for a while, for basically the entire industrial era, that relationship was somewhere between, you know, exploitive and actually abusive. So let me show you what I mean by that. Here is a picture of 170 years of economic growth in the US. And when your economy grows at two or 3% a year steadily, you get that nice ski jump kind of exponential growth. Here comes the unfortunate part. This is how much energy we needed to generate that economy year after year. It's almost a one-for-one relationship. In the 20th century, our data got a little bit better. So let me zoom in on the 20th century. Here's the American economy over Uh, 70 years. And here's how many natural resources we required year after year to have that level of economic growth. These are metals, fertilizer, almost doesn't matter what resource you look at. You notice this incredibly tight relationship between the size of the economy and the amount of resources that we needed in order to generate that economy. So, you know, we're, we're taking stuff from the earth. It's kind of an exploitive relationship. It gets worse in my eyes. Here's what air pollution looked like in the years leading up to 1970. We were polluting the skies and the water and the land more year after year. And when I was researching the book, one of the crazy things I learned was that up until about the middle of the 20th century, it was not widely accepted that pollution was anything more than an annoyance or a nuisance. The idea that it might actually really negatively impact our health was just not widely accepted at all. And in addition to polluting the world that we lived on, um, we took some of the most majestic, some of the most amazing animals on the face of the planet and almost wiped them out. So this is the number of blue whales. This is a representation of the number of blue whales in the Southern Oceans in 1970. By the early 1900s, by the early 1970s, we had taken them down to about, as far as we can tell, about 500 animals in all of the Southern Oceans. So this is just flat abuse of the planet that we live on, as far as I can tell, especially because when you look at what we use these animals for, we killed almost all the blue whales to make margarine and lubricants and nitroglycerin to make explosives. We had other sources for these materials. So this is just, you know, we can all look at this as some kind of environmental crime. And the environmental movement in the United States and around the world was born around 1970 with the first Earth Day. And one of the things that we heard, one of the um, 
main ideas that came out of that movement was this can't continue, this headlong exponential growth that we've been doing, especially in the rich world, we see the bad consequences of it. You can't keep taking more from the earth. You can't keep beating up the species. You can't keep polluting it. And the only way around this is for that exponential curve of our growth to change direction, to level off. And actually, if you listen to this school of thought, to go negative. In other words, we need a permanent, ever-deepening recession if we're going to start taking better care of our planet. The slogan was that the only sustainable growth is degrowth. And I want to talk about the, the second chapter of this story of our relationship with our planet. The first point I want to make is that we in America have really not embraced degrowth at all. There's real GDP up to 1970. Here's what it's looked like since then. You have trouble seeing massive voluntary renunciation of consumption in America. Our economy is growing a little bit more slowly than it used to, but it's still growing at a pretty steady clip. And where things get interesting to me is when we look at what's happened to this relationship with our planet. And in particular, are we still exploiting it to the same extent that we used to? Do we still need to take more from the earth year after year in order to generate our prosperity and our economy? And my answer to that, and the reason I wrote the book, is no, essentially. And let me try to make that case with some evidence here. Here's what American crop tonnage has looked like since the mid-1950s. We are an agricultural juggernaut. The tonnage of crops that we produce goes up year after year. But now let's add on the main inputs to agriculture. This is what total fertilizer use in America looks like. This is not fertilizer use per acre. This is total fertilizer use in the country. It used to go up in lockstep with our crop tonnage. That's decoupled now. The same thing is true of water for agriculture. And the same thing is true for the actual acreage of land that we need to generate all of that crop output. Since the early 1980s, we have given an amount of land back to nature from agriculture equal in size to the state of Washington. This is a big reversal. If we look more broadly, this is, again, this is the overall size of the economy from 1900 to 2015. This is what the paperwork burden of the American economy looks like. We plateaued our total paper consumption around the turn of the century. And as we've moved deeper into the smartphone era, our total use of paper has declined by about 20%. We see the same thing with other forest products. So we're just starting to build this narrative about taking less from the earth to generate our prosperity. I want to show you the story about metals use in America. And before I do that, uh, I want to take on the counter argument that the reason that resource use is declining is because we're outsourcing all of our resource use to China and other countries. I hear the argument pretty often that this dematerialization story that I'm telling is really an offshoring story. And if you try to account for that properly, you won't come to the same conclusion. The main reason I don't buy that is that the United States remains a manufacturing powerhouse. We hear about the decline of American manufacturing, and there's some elements of that that are true, but this is actually what our total manufacturing activity looks like over a pretty long space of time. Whether you look at a more general production index or a manufacturing one, we are a large and growing manufacturing powerhouse, number two in the world, China's passed us. But when we look at our total consumption of metals, we see a really different pattern emerge. And in the years since Earth Day, our use of our total consumption of a lot of important metals plateaued and is now on a generally downward trend. I do want a little bit of credit for trying to make the metals lines 
the same color as the medals themselves. I'm, I'm weirdly <laughs> proud of that here. So we've just seen this really, this very, very broad decoupling of economic growth from resource consumption. And it was almost totally unanticipated. As I've gone back and looked at the literature and the schools of thought around Earth Day and afterward, I didn't see this cropping up anywhere. Anybody saying, hey, don't worry, we're about to substantially divorce our economic growth from our exploitation of the planet, from resource use. Let's switch now. Uh, let me do one more. Let's look at total energy use. Remember, here was the line up until 1970, and this is what's been happening since then. Uh, the American economy is about 25% bigger than it was at the end of the Great Recession. Our energy use has hardly ticked up at all over that time. Again, I didn't know anybody that was anticipating it. We are finally on a downward trend with our total CO2 emissions, in large part because of the substitution for, of natural gas for coal for electricity generation. I don't want to sound like I'm complacent at all. Global warming is real and bad, and we're not doing enough to fight it. But it is also true that this style, this kind of pollution is now on a downward trend, even after you take into account the fact that we've outsourced and offshored a lot of our manufacturing. So here's our old pollution graph, what's been happening since 1970. The story is an incredibly positive one. The air in America is, I think, about 90% cleaner than it was 50 years ago. The measures we've put in place to clean up our skies have been fantastically effective. Uh, what about, we, we have to talk about global warming. When I think about global warming and greenhouse gases as another flavor of air pollution, things get a lot conceptually simpler to me. We've had amazing success at air pollution reduction. Reducing greenhouse gases will be difficult for a lot of reasons, but it's not mysterious. It's another category of air pollution. And if any of us have economist friends, we know that economists agree on absolutely nothing. <laughs> I have never seen broader agreement across the economics discipline than on the best tool for fighting global warming, which is to make carbon expensive via a carbon dividend. Uh, 3,500 economists and counting have signed on to a letter espousing this as the smartest thing for us to be doing. So again, global warming is real and it's bad and it's going to be tough to fight. It is not a mysterious problem. It's a pretty well understood one. And then the last uh, set of pictures that I want to show are about our friends, the whales. Their populations are actually coming back. Nowhere near where they were at the start of the 20th century, but the trends are in the right direction. And when we look at other threatened species, the bison, the beaver, wolf, white-tail, deer, black bear, populations are growing, at least in the rich world here. So we hear a lot of gloom and doom, and we should focus on things that aren't going well. There are a lot of very positive trends in our relationship with the planet. And in the book, I talk about why they're happening. And this is my shorthand explanation for what's going on. We're using fewer resources because companies that are knocked in, locked in nasty competition want to save money. And the digital age offers all kinds of ways to swap out atoms and swap in bits. That's the combination of capitalism and tech progress. We need an aware public to say, stop polluting our skies and stop killing all the whales. And we need responsive governments to listen to that. If we have them, and I call these in the book, the four horsemen of the optimist, it's delicate. You got to put them in place. You have to be vigilant about them. But when all four are in place, I actually am very confident that we can eliminate the trade-off between our prosperity and a healthy state of nature. We can have both at the same time. Uh, this is shameless pandering, but I want to show you one final 
piece of evidence about how things can be better over time. This is not Photoshop. This is an actual picture of a whale off the coast of New York City. They're coming back to that, that, that part of the country now. So you've shared with us several of the trends that you've seen, several of the trends that you've studied and shared in your book. Um, a lot of this is tracing the various industrial revolutions that we've been through in, our, in the U.S. economy, in our global economy. And many people would say today we're in the fourth industrial revolution. So tell us more about how do we think about those four industrial revolutions that we've been to and how do you define the fourth industrial revolution? First of all, the proper term is the second machine age. And I think we all need to be very clear about that. When you write a book with that title, you prefer it to the fourth industrial revolution. But when the reason I wrote this book is I started to think there is a three chapter story about our relationship with the planet that we live on. The first chapter was prior to the industrial revolution when we could not take enough resources from the earth to meaningfully increase our population or our prosperity. We really did live in this weird Malthusian world where there was this hard ceiling on how prosperous we could be. The Industrial Revolution completely changed that story and we unlocked the energy and fossil fuels and you just watch the trajectory of human population and prosperity completely changed direction. It just goes almost vertical. But that second chapter, the industrial era, we were kind of hard on the planet. We took resources from it. We exploited species. We polluted in a kind of a wanton way. And the great triumph of the environmental movement, I think, was to say, we, we can't keep doing this. You have to stop and to demand action on it. And what the chapter that I think we're in now is a much more encouraging one, where in the United States and in other very wealthy, technologically advanced economies, we're seeing that trade-off between increased human prosperity and taking better care of nature. We're seeing that trade-off fade, and I think it's going to be in the rearview mirror if we play our cards right. Even with the, the real and present danger of global warming, we can solve that problem. I'm very confident we can. That's different than saying we will, but I think our tools are adequate. Yeah. So when we were preparing for today's conversation, you know, I, I serve as our sustainability officer here at Google, and you said, you know, you feel like people don't always really define sustainability that well. So I'm so curious. People always ask me this question, but I'd love to ask you this question. How do you think about the role of sustainability? What does that mean? How does that factor into these trends that you're sharing in the book? I find it a really fuzzy word, and I tend not to use it a lot mm -hmm. because it very quickly turns into a hammer for people that make everybody else do what they want them to do, whether that's ban plastic straws or sign up for the Green New Deal or whatever. But when I, if I think about the word, though, what it means to me is what are we doing that's, that will not be sustainable, that's demonstrably not sustainable? And I can think of two main things. Number one is take all the resources from the earth you know, use these as inputs. Number two, have so many bad side effects from our economic activities that we screw up the planet and we screw up our, our health and our prosperity. I'm really worried about the second one of those two. Mm -hmm. Pollution is real and yeah. it's bad, and global warming is the most scary global kind of pollution that we face. One of the weirder conclusions that I came to as I was writing the book is <clears throat> resource scarcity is not something that we need to worry about. Hmm. We've been worrying about it for 50 years. We've been panicked about it. There was a book called Limits to Growth written out of MIT in 1972 that said the global economy is going to grind to a halt because of resource shortages. No. Uh, and when you look at the prices, the affordability of almost any resource, any physical building block for the economy, things get more affordable over time, not less. So for me, we can take that off the table of sustainability concerns and let's focus on the, the real issues, which are pollution 
and fencing off parts of the world so that our fellow creatures can live on them and replenish themselves. Let's not put everything into the capitalist machinery. Let's put parks outside, put whales outside, and be mindful about that. Okay, so I'm curious. I, I'm a big proponent of the concept of Earth Overshoot Day. So there's a great organization it's right across the bay from where we are here today in Sunnyvale. Uh, they every year calculate when have we exhausted nature's resource budget for the year. This year in 2019, that day was July 29th. So what we know is every day since July 29th, we've been drawing down local resource stocks, emitting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that can be absorbed. So what that means is we need 1.7 Earths to support today's consumption. How do we square that with your research? Um, I'm less of a fan of that organization than you are, because right. what I think they're doing is loading everything onto the carbon budget and saying we cannot continue to emit this much carbon. Great. I'm all about reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in the air. But the notion that we're using up 1.7 Earths and we're doing that year after year. If that were the case, I think we were to run out of Earth by now. I just, I can't make the arithmetic work the way that they're looking at it. So again, we have to reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, we, we're not doing nearly enough on that front, but these other worries about using up the Earth, I, I, I just don't think they're well-founded. So on the topic of dematerialization, you talked about that a little bit, that that's a big role the technology had played. You showed a stat about paper. Talk a little bit more about what dematerialization means to you and what you see have, as the big drivers that have enabled that. The, uh, the single best example of this broad trend of being able to satisfy all of our wants and needs, all of our desires to consume while taking less from the earth uh, came from a retired newsman in Buffalo, New York. And this guy's idea of a good time was to wander around yard sales in Buffalo and see if anything reminded him of the history of that city. And he bought a stack of newspapers of the Buffalo News from 1991, took them home and started flipping through them. And he found a Radio Shack ad in the back of one of the sections of a, of a newspaper. And he had this wonderful insight. He said there were 15 items, 15 devices on this ad from Radio Shack from 1991. 13 of them have vanished into your smartphone. And, you know, do you carry around a camcorder anymore? Do you carry around a film camera? Do you carry around a scanner? Do you have a tape recorder? Do you have an answering machine? Do you have a fax? I don't have any of these things anymore. And if you weighed those 13 devices, they would weigh a lot. They were kind of resource intensive. They would consume a lot of electricity as you use them throughout the year. And they've all just vanished down into the smartphone. And I think that's a very clear example of a phenomenon that's happening in the foreground and the background of every industry that I can think of, which is just not out of altruism, but out of a desire to satisfy consumer demand while spending less money. It just kind of impels us to use less stuff from the physical world. Every additional molecule you typically pay for, every additional bit you typically don't. So, so we're here today at Google. Um, you know, on that smartphone that's dematerialized, all those devices you just mentioned, a lot of people are using Google products like Search, Gmail. And as we know, the way that we deliver those products to all of our users is through our data centers. Yep. Our data centers are the heart and soul of Google. They operate 24 by 7 around the world to deliver those products. Now, we've been very focused on making those data centers highly sustainable. We've been a carbon neutral company since 2007. We're matching 100% of our energy with renewables. We're driving on energy efficiency. Nonetheless, people still often ask me the question, and I'm sure they ask you too, 
how do we square that circle? Are all of these new technology solutions that we're putting out into the world, what's enabled this dematerialization? What about that back-end yeah. energy use? And also, what about the ICT infrastructure? That's right. How do you think about that? And I get asked exactly this question. I was really ambushed the first time I heard it. And somebody said, your industry is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And your industry has grown so quickly in the 21st century that I hear this complaint that the digital industries are massive energy sucks in America and around the world. And I thought I hadn't heard that. I was interested. Luckily, thanks to Google, you can go find evidence on a lot of questions that you're interested in. So I drew a graph of, again, you know, the, the size of the U.S. economy. It's always my favorite baseline. And then the total electricity usage over the course of the 20th and the 21st centuries for America. And it's a super weird picture because, again, electricity use just went up in lockstep with the overall size of the economy until about 10 years ago. And I had no idea, but total American electricity use has been flat for about a decade, even as you and your peers have become bigger and more influential companies. That tells me that this that you actually are part of the solution instead of part of the problem, because what's happening is that people are using all that computing power in all of your data centers to go save money on electricity elsewhere in the economy. And if that weren't the case, that line would not have leveled off. I can't think of another explanation for that phenomenon. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And a study that, that I often cite is Lawrence Berkeley National Lab put out the study in 2016 that said over the previous 10 years, data center energy, energy use, was, actually, I think it was the previous five years, data center energy use basically held flat even though there was huge growth in the number of data centers in the U.S., huge growth in compute. And we know we've seen here at Google that compared to five years ago, we're now getting seven times more compute for the same amount of electricity. So we're very much seeing that phenomenon. But I wanted to ask you, I haven't seen another study since 2016 that really dug into this. Is this something that you've looked at or that you guys might study at MIT? I want to dive in deeper on a couple of these issues and, and try to paint a more systematic picture because I think we're getting some pretty fundamental things wrong. We're walking around with the industrial age notion that our consumption and our growth has to be more resource intensive over time, has to be harsher on the planet over time. Mm -hmm. And everybody from Vaclav Smil, who's one of my heroes, he's written these amazing books about our, our consumption and our use of materials, everyone from him to Naomi Klein to Greta Thunberg to that, the, the young Swedish activist is now saying a modern version of the degrowth argument. They're saying economic growth has to stop. To me, that's exactly the same as saying that human prosperity cannot increase anymore around the world. I, I really have a problem with that argument, and I think it's wrong on the merits. I think we are now demonstrating that we can increase human prosperity and take better care of nature. To the extent that's true, we do not need to stop growing. Yeah. Indira Gandhi said in 1972 that poverty is the greatest polluter. I think that's absolutely right. So my prescription is the opposite of the degrowth prescription. It's let's help the rest of the world get rich. They're going to go through the same transition we did, and they will start lightening up on the planet as well. So you talked about climate. You acknowledge that climate is a crisis that we're facing, that it's something that has to be addressed. And of course, you know, you shared some stats around um, ecosystems that have bounced back, like you talked about blue whales. But also we know there are ecosystems that because of climate, are collapsing, like ocean acidification that's ruining our coral reefs. You know, how do you square that with this argument where we see, obviously you've acknowledged climate is a big issue, but climate is caused by consumption of fossil fuels that's fueled this growth, yep. but 
that's something we haven't yet tackled at scale, and it is also hurting our ecosystems. Where does that fit in? I, I agree with every word of that, and I got a lot of insight from William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize last year in economics, and Marty Weitzman, another really good economist, and they both said kind of the same thing, which is that there's a huge uncertainty about how bad global warming is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people think, well, because we don't know for sure, and it might not be that bad to heck with it. And these guys said, no, you're thinking about it all wrong. The tail risk from global warming, the 10 or 15% tail risk is catastrophically bad for the planet. When that's the case, we have an obligation, a fiduciary, any kind of obligation to deal with that magnitude of risk when the tail is that fat. And so, again, they, what Nordhaus said was a carbon, a revenue-neutral carbon tax is the first tool that we should be reaching for. And that just means that we tax carbon. Companies run away from that additional cost. But instead of the government keeping that money, we just pass it right back to people in the form of a carbon dividend. And that will have all these wonderful effects. It frustrates me that, as far as I can tell, None of the presidential candidates are putting that front and center. And I don't hear a global movement for the one thing that 3,500 economists can agree on. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know something is mm-hmm. fundamentally important when 3,500 economists can agree on it. Yeah. All right. So you're, you're highlighting one of the interventions that you see as being important from a policy pr- perspective, from an economic perspective. Um, what other role do you see policy plaguing or businesses, NGOs, individuals? Where do people fit into this vision? And in the book, I kind of lay out prescriptions for yeah. all those different groups, policymakers, individuals and, and families, uh, not-for-profits and the business community. And your industry is taking the lead on identifying the problem, saying that it's real and, and be, and finding good solutions, you're carbon neutral. I think other high tech companies have, have either achieved that or have in a, in a realistic way signed up for that. I hope that spreads. I, I sense a wave of consumer sentiment building that is going to call companies out on their bad carbon practices. I desperately hope that continues. But the main thing that I, I try to tell individuals and families to do is in addition to changing some of your, you know, your, your activities, we have to inform ourselves about the best tools available to fight these battles. We have to be evidence-driven. And that sounds really anodyne. We're not evidence-driven. We're super tribal. We're all biased. We love our intuition. Uh, nuclear power activates an ick reflex among almost everybody that I talk to. Nuclear power is absolutely part of the solution for dealing with global warming. And the fact that it's off the table in so much of the world is absolutely bizarre and super frustrating to me. Yeah. So, so earlier you told me you don't think in industrial revolutions. So what, but nonetheless, what do you think is this next era that we're moving into? Are we at the beginning of, of an era? Are we at the end of an era? Sort of where do you see us going from here? Situate us a little bit. About once a century, a wave of technology comes along that's so powerful that it changes the march of progress. It happened with the steam engine and the first industrial revolution. It happened about a century later with internal combustion and electrification and indoor plumbing, which was massively valuable. Mm-hmm. Eric and I uh, and uh, a bunch of our colleagues think that we're in another one of those periods right now. It's not going to happen overnight. Productivity is still lousy. These are decade or decades long transformations. But I mean, how different is the world going to be in 50 years? I hear pretty often that the way we live today is not that different than the way we did 50 years ago. I think there's some truth to that. 50 years hence, 
we're living in a complete science fiction world. So we're in the early innings of another one of these very deep transformations. And I just think it's exciting that I get to try to think about it, talk about some of the trajectories that we're seeing, and inject a note of evidence-based optimism. Elite conversations, we try to out-gloomy each other at, mm -hmm. at Cambridge dinner parties where I live. And I, just, I don't want to be part of that trend anymore because I don't think the evidence supports it. We have challenges. But if you go to Our World in Data, which is one of my favorite websites, and you just browse around, you walk away happier, actually. Most of the things, not all, most of the things that I know you would care about and I would care about are trending in the right direction. We need to emphasize that. Yeah, I was just curious about... <clears throat> where population growth fits into all of this? Yeah, it's a great question because population growth was another one of those things that we really started to worry about around the time of the first Earth Day. And Paul Ehrlich wrote the book, The Population Bomb in 1968. I think it started off saying hundreds of millions of people are gonna die in a famine and there's nothing we can do about it. That, that was his opening for the book. Uh, hundreds of millions of people did not die in a famine. And what I think we've learned in the half century since then is that it's wrong to think about these additional human beings as passive mouths that need to be fed or just passive resource consumers. Instead, they are problem solvers, they're innovators, they're entrepreneurs, they're part of this engine of, of ingenuity that we have. And if you look at the trends around fam, uh, incidents of famine, calorie availability, human health, they're all heading in exactly the right direction. Even as we've added, I forget how many billion people since 1970. So the thing I'm more worried about over the course of the 21st century is that we're not going to have enough people. And in particular, the ratio of working age people to elderly people is gonna shift a lot in the decades to come in most countries around the world. That's gonna put stress on our pension systems and things like that. But I still read reports once in a while that say, oh my heavens, can we feed all the mouths that will exist in 2050? I find that unbelievably frustrating. Yes, we will feed them better than we're feeding them today, even as the planet warms. I'll take that bet all day long. So I'm all for progress, and, and I like this, this story. Uh, but sometimes there can be these uh, effects. And you, you mentioned pollution. Uh, I think uh, extinction is, is another aspect, right? So you have these traditional Chinese medicines, and now these economies get richer, and suddenly there can be demand for ivory and rhino parts and jaguar parts and everything else that they couldn't afford before, and now they could afford enough to wipe out these species. Uh, what do we do about that? Uh, um, amazingly enough, I think the trends there in, in exactly the areas you mentioned are positive trends. I want to acknowledge the problem, though. You bring up that low-income people relying especially on tr some kinds of traditional medicine. As they become more affluent, they can put real pressure on those animals. Absolutely. Uh, China is my exhibit A for the, the happy version of, of an outcome there. China has what they call three strict bans in place now on the sale of rhino and tiger products. It's illegal to buy them, sell them, or own them. And they either have put in place or are about to put in place a very strict ban on the carving and the sale of ivory. So what my story for that is, as those people became more affluent, their circle of empathy broadened 
and they actually decided to take better care of these creatures. In addition to which, I think last year, China was contemplating relaxing those three strict bans on rhino and tiger products, and around the world, an outcry ensued, led by environmental groups, and uh, and China walked away from relaxing that ban and said, we're going to leave that in place. So I think both internal desire to take better care of the environment external pressure from watchdog groups and environmentalists. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to solve the problems everywhere in the world, but I see some really encouraging signs in exactly the places that, that we were worried about. In regard to dematerialization, are there other industries or sectors that are slow to catch up or haven't really taken a positive trend? I'm thinking maybe airline travel or fashion, when you're fast, fast fashion is a very, very big sort of consumer thing where, you know, people are buying almost too many shirts, shoes, and that's things that they really need. And that's still very impactful to the environment. Yeah, there are definitely industries that are farther along on this trend. And you bring up apparel, and in particular, fast fashion, where especially, you know, younger, more style conscious people now can buy clothes that are designed to be worn a very small number of times and then throw them away. Again, as long as we are dealing with the bad side effects of that, uh, when you make clothing, you generate a lot of chemicals and dyes, and you have to dispose of those correctly. In the rich world, we have safeguards in place. We have restrictions on, your, on polluting that are enforced. In the developing world, we don't. Uh, my solution, again, make those countries more wealthy. Their people will start to demand solutions. But if we can deal with the pollution that comes from making clothes, I don't mean to be blasé, but we are not going to run out of cotton, wool, and artificial fabrics. We're just not. So I don't see the environmental problem from fast fashion. Leaving aside pollution, that's a very serious problem. We don't, we're not going to run out of holes in the ground to put waste in, and we're not going to run out of things like cotton and wool. So again, I'm I, I, I struggling to see what the real problem is there. I, sometimes I think people just don't like the trend, and so they find reasons to dislike it or to, to oppose it. What is your thoughts on cobalt, like the battery charger? Like, uh, you have any opinion that you can share on the resources end from that? There's a constant conversation about the resource that is about to become scarce. And right now we talk about cobalt a lot. We talk about lithium because we're all expecting a battery revolution. What's interesting is that conversation has been going on forever, or at least as far back as, as the first Earth Day. And every resource that I've been able to track has gotten steadily more affordable over time. And what I mean by that is if you look at the world's average person, how many minutes would that person have to work to be able to afford a pound of cheese, a pound of wool, a pound of cobalt, whatever? And the number of minutes has been trending downward very steadily over time. So we do see price spikes. So that's what happens with commodities. They, their prices are very spiky. But what also happens is the instant cobalt becomes red hot and the price goes up, there will be a lot more cobalt prospectors out there in the world. And I guarantee we're going to uncover some vast cobalt deposits somewhere or other. So I'm not worried even about resource shortages of rare earth minerals and cobalt and things like that. History tells me that that's not a thing to worry about. Now, again, the thing to worry about is that right now, cobalt is being mined in very low-income countries in very unsafe and environmentally unsound ways. 
That is a super hard problem to fix. We can put pressure on those countries. We can put pressure on the companies that buy cobalt so they sign up for sustainable practices. We can absolutely do that. My fundamental solution, improve the incomes of those countries. Their people will start to demand a cleaner world. Thank you. I think still coming to, to, to us today. Uh, you were saying that nuclear power is part of the solution, and I would like to, you to expand on that. I really think that uh, um, so many people think that nuclear has any incidence on global warming, which is totally crazy, or it's too dangerous when you compare it to yeah. wars in the Middle East. It's totally crazy to think that. <laughs> so I just want you to expand on that. And is that a French accent that I hear? Yes. And your country just announced in a very brave way that they're going to build, what is it? A handful the, of new reactors. In the yeah, the, the Phoenix one, yeah. yeah. And, and we see Germany as well, which is stopping nuclear power and increasing the carbon consumption with, uh, with, uh, with, um, yeah. sorry, with coal. So, yeah. I, uh, do we know who Jan LeCun is? Uh, one of the AI rock stars, a French guy. And I follow him mainly to get his AI thoughts. He posted a great graph a while back that showed how much energy was generated in each European country and how carbon intensive that energy was. And you look at Germany, it's a big economy. Their carbon intensity is pretty lousy. France was generating about as much electricity every day for the period they studied. And the carbon density was so much lower for your country. And we have exactly one energy source in the world today that is very green, very potent, very scalable, not at all intermittent. And here's the part people have trouble with, safe. The track record of nuclear power is by far the best track record of energy any energy source that we have to deal with. When you look at death rates caused by accidents or death rates caused by pollution, it's absolutely not even close. And this surprised the heck out of me. I got freaked out by Three Mile Island when I was a kid and Chernobyl and Fukushima. I just watched the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO. It's terrifying. It's also fiction. Uh, the, the actual death toll from Chernobyl, which was about as bad in a nu nuclear accident as you could imagine. was I read the reports, the death toll was real and it was bizarrely low given how bad the accident was. So I think our aversion to nuclear power is not grounded in the evidence. And in the book, I just make a plea for us to be evidence-driven about the things that we support. I think the crazy is winning the argument on nuclear power and on GMOs. And those are two areas where we really need for the crazy not to win the argument. Many people focus on personal plastic use, water use, etc. in the face of climate change. Yet, 100 companies and their investors create 70% of the world's CO2 emissions. Yeah. How do we hold them accountable as well and get away from this solely individualistic mindset, which itself is a driver of capitalism? Carbon dividend. If you want companies to change their behavior, change their costs, change their incentives. When a company faces a sudden change in its cost structure, it will run from that cost like a gazelle will run when it smells a lion. It's amazing how quickly the behavior will change. So if we want these companies to change, lecturing them feels good. It accomplishes almost nothing. Change their incentives, change their cost structure. And we have very well-designed tools, very precise tools for doing that, developed by our, my friends in, in the world of economics, the reason that the, the air pollution in the U.S. went down so quickly was because we put in place a cap-and-trade program, which is another variant on making pollution expensive in the U.S. We saw how much air pollution improved, and the cost of doing it was about one-fourth or one-fifth of the originally estimated cost for industry. So what happens when you change the cost suddenly is businesses become a lot more willing to invest in 
cost-reducing activities and they fund R&D in a very different way. And I think everyone agrees that we need a massive wave of R&D investment in clean and green energy. By far the best way to get that is to start making the old energy expensive for companies. Uh, Can you summarize some of the evidence for why your story is not uh, an offshoring one? Simply because if that story would only make sense to me if U.S. manufacturing were declining. It's not declining. We still make stuff. We make more stuff every year, but we make it while using fewer metals, fewer resources from the natural world. So we are outsourcing to China, absolutely. And our manufacturing growth has slowed down. Our manufacturing growth is still positive. Our metals use has trended negative. I I can't attribute 100% of that to outsourcing, given those facts. All right. Andrew McAfee, thank you so much for the great discussion today. The book is more from less. Thank you all for for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at Talks at Google. Talk soon.